Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 40 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Paul Ratzer of PR2020, HubSpot's first certified agency partner and one of the leading inbound marketing agencies today. In the year that I've been hosting this podcast, I've noticed a major difference in how big agencies market themselves compared to the smaller agencies. Whether it's a trademark processor model they follow to produce consistent results, or books they've published laying out their methodology, the larger agencies almost always have developed unique intellectual property to help differentiate themselves from the competition, while the smaller agencies usually just focus exclusively on the generic services that they offer. Paul gives dozens of talks a year around the country, has published two books, his agencies develop proprietary software, and now they're even getting into AI. Today, we dive into why all this stuff is so important, how they actually managed to build this portfolio of IP, and the results that's driven for his agency. If you're struggling to stand out from the crowd, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here's Paul. Paul, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. How do you go from starting college as a pre-med major to founding one of the preeminent inbound agencies? You don't go to your pre-med classes at 8 a.m. <laughs> freshman year fall quarter. Uh, no, I was pretty set on being a doctor from the time I was five. I had promised my mom I would find a cure for cancer after we lost a, a family friend. And so that was my mission in life. And then uh, I got to school and realized to do that, you had to take a bunch of science classes that I wasn't necessarily um, that motivated at the time to take. <laughs> so I just didn't really go to class much. It was an 8 a.m. class, four days a week, plus a lab, all quarter freshman year at a school that had a lot of parties. And, uh, and so I just, four weeks in up to a 10-week quarter, I realized, like, wow, I am not going to pass this class. And so I finished it up. The, it was BIOS 170, finished up the class. I failed it. Um, had to retake it to get rid of that grade. And at that point, just started kind of looking for the next thing. And I ended up realizing Ohio University had an incredible journalism school and there happened to be a PR major within it. And I didn't necessarily know what that was at the time. And I didn't know how hard it was going to be to get into the journalism school, but that's what I set out to do. And a couple of years later, I got accepted into the journalism school and got an internship at a PR agency in Cleveland. And Rest is history, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Once you got that job at the PR agency, how did things go for you? Was it something, did you immediately know, like, all right, I'm going to go out on my own and build something, or were you just going with it? No, I never intended to start my own agency. It, it was not something I was went into the industry uh, thinking about at all. And I just started at a small firm and had the opportunity to do a ton of really cool stuff pretty early in my career, because it was, it was about five or six people maybe when I started. So I got exposed to a ton of stuff and at a very early age had a lot of responsibility and was working on business development and starting to kind of try and help shape some of the growth opportunities for the agency. And in the process, just started realizing there was a whole lot of things about the traditional agency model that didn't make a ton of sense to me, like the pricing model, for example, and um, performance reporting or the lack of performance reporting. And so I, I just started screwing around with this idea of PR 2020, which was a, a paper I started writing about a different vision for how the industry could evolve. And from that spun off a nights and weekends hobby of trying to build a different kind of model, like running financial models and what would services look like and starting to weave that stuff into the new business proposals I was doing for the agency, just trying to approach new business differently and just sort of got to the point where I realized if I was going to see this concept through, I I probably needed to leave. Like I couldn't do it there, and so I I actually decided on a uh, Wednesday I was leaving. That Sunday I got a twenty five thousand dollar loan, and I handed my resignation the, the next Wednesday. So it all kind of happened over about a seven day period where I literally decided I was going to become an entrepreneur and go do it. Were you single at the time? No, I was married. We got married right out of school, but we didn't have any kids. And my wife is an artist, so we had started an art business for her. So I had all the flexibility in the world to 
do the do the work and my wife was an understanding and supportive of the hours and so no it was it was the perfect time i was 27 when i did it and didn't really have any obligations um so it, it worked out well you knew what you wanted to build in terms of the system and and why it would be different but did you have the end in mind of like how big of an agency and all of that type of thing i had a business plan on paper that the business world tells you you need to have with a five-year model of how many employees and revenue and profits and all that stuff that as anyone who's ever built one knows is totally useless other than forcing you to go through the process which is helpful the projections are absurd like to think anybody can project out five years is crazy and especially at that time period because five years you know think about this i i wrote the business plan in 2004, 2005, um, Twitter didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist publicly yet. Google was five years old. The iPhone didn't exist. So to think I could look out five years from that time period and, and think I knew what was going to happen is, is insane to look back now on because you think of how quickly things transform now. So, you know, I, I had visions of it being a, a big agency that it, you know, if we did it the way I intended, we could grow it pretty quickly. But it was originally designed as a small business agency to make agencies like services affordable um, and accessible to small businesses. And then we pivoted within the first two months because of demand from larger companies as saw us as an alternative. Hmm. What were the services that attracted those larger companies to you guys? Well, to you, I guess, at that point. We offered, we actually published, as far as I know, the first standard service and pricing guide the industry had ever seen. We, we took 19 service categories, 105 services with three tiers for each service and had set prices for every service. So it was meant to actually become an e-commerce element at some point where you could go build your own plan. Um, so that was different. I mean, there was everything from, it was anything a business would need to do to grow. So it was brand marketing and advertising and direct mail and PR and I mean, social wasn't one yet, but. Was um, it you handling all of that? Uh, in theory, yeah. I mean, we had some partnerships in place with designers and developers where I'd negotiated rates on uh, anything that required that stuff. But otherwise, it was theoretically going to be us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically the difference was I my personal network was with larger enterprises and middle market companies, and I tried to stay very under the radar, but the local business pub, Cranes, got wind of it and actually wrote about it, um, and then word just kind of spread that we had sort of built this different model, and so people started calling and just asking if it would work for their business, and yeah, just kind of started growing. I'm guessing for people who might not be familiar with what the sort of PR agency world was like at that point, like it's not clear what exactly the services are. The pricing is very uh, like not clear either. It's just things weren't as transparent. And so is that why it just, when you came in with that transparency, it just shook things up a bit? Yeah. I mean, basically that's the premise is people pay hourly rates and they don't really know what the value is that they get. There's soft metrics like impressions and ad equivalency and PR value that don't really connect to bottom line results. And there's just a basic uncertainty around what exactly it is they're getting. So my feeling was make it, it the original t concept behind a hybrid was a retail service firm hybrid where buying a service was as uh, logical as buying a product off of a shelf that you knew you had a need to grow. You could look at the a la carte menu and assuming you could build your own strategy you could actually go through and say okay i need three of these and four of those and five of these and you could in theory build your entire marketing program and see what it cost as you were doing it well and then what ended up happening is we needed to be the ones building the strategies so we started kind of but but again we used that standardized guide you know you think about processes we used that standardized guide to create a f economies of scale in the production and delivery of services. So we could build proposals faster. We could build strategic plans faster. We could do everything faster because we had a template to work off of. So it wasn't as though people were just coming to you and ordering from the menu. They still needed some strategy guidance. They still needed some help in you saying, like, this is what you need. But then at that point, you could point to this is what it'll cost, this is what you'll get, and be very clear and upfront about what was involved. Yeah. 
Interesting. So at, when did you go from offering this 100 plus kind of list of services to focusing more on inbound marketing? Because at that time, like inbound marketing wasn't a thing. HubSpot didn't exist. Right. Uh, probably somewhere around 2007, 2008. Um, so what happened there is we had a couple calls with HubSpot in late 2007. So they were about a year old at the time. And um, I ended up subscribing or purchasing HubSpot largely for access to their methodology. So I could use it to train our staff on blogging and social media and email marketing. And so we were paying whatever it was at the time, 250 a month for a license and we didn't even install the JavaScript on our site for like four months, honestly. Like we, we weren't using the software, we were just using the methodology. And then as soon as we installed the JavaScript in probably January, February of 08, I started seeing the potential to take our model of like this standardized services and apply it to HubSpot. And so in 2008, we were it, like we were their first partner. So they started sending all of their clients that didn't want to do the work themselves to us. And so our we grew 100% in 2008. And it was largely because of referrals coming in from HubSpot. And so we bundled our services into uh, service packages. And so for, you know, a thousand a month or 2000 a month or 3000 a month, you could get this standard list of services that we had prepackaged. Um, so that was our first as far as I can recall, that was our first effort to actually create service packages. So if you go to our website today, you can see it's broken up into service packages. This is like version five. So the the original was this one we created and rolled out in 2008 when we started selling HubSpot licenses to our customers. You were the first agency partner. You're the first guys to go in there and execute on this and deliver it to people who who are aware of the trend, didn't want to do the work themselves, but I'm guessing there were other agencies coming in. Did they see what you were doing? And, and cause I, you published, it was the agency blueprint. When was that? When did that come out? I wrote that in 2011. It came. Yeah. So it, it was, um, yeah, starting in 2008, what ended up happening is Pete Caputo was at HubSpot and still is at HubSpot, but he kind of started getting a vision for how they could build a partner program and, and grow through this bar network. So I went to Boston in December of 08, right after the first inbound marketing summit, which became inbound now. Um, and I met with Brian Halligan and Darmesh and Pete and kind of we just talked about where the agency ecosystem could go go, and the vision for what agencies could become and how they could help sell HubSpot and how help HubSpot could help grow agencies. And so from that conversation, um, we started to share a little bit more, like, you know, did webinars with HubSpot and things like that. But for a couple of years, Pete pushed me to really open up and share what we were doing and what we were learning. And I hesitated. And then in, December of 2010, I, I I had a change of heart and I just decided to, like there was nothing we were doing that people couldn't eventually figure out. And uh, I worried initially that we would share too much competitive information. And then I realized that most agencies we would never compete with and most of them were just good people who wanted to build businesses and control their own you know, create their own freedoms. And so I thought, well, we don't have all the answers, but we've learned a ton in these five years and we can share a lot of what we learned and what I think is possible. And I think that can help accelerate other people's development as organizations, as agencies. And if we, you know, lose some competitive edge in, in the process, fine. Like it'll force us to continue to innovate in different ways. And so that's what it led to the book. And so I agreed to do the book in 2011, wrote it, and then it came out in, like, I think December of 2011. Yeah, so it wasn't like you had this whole content marketing funnel built out where the book was a way to get agencies to come in and to get coaching and all these other services. It was, at those stages, that wasn't the main consideration. It was almost as a way of sharing and of giving back and kind of growing the overall community. Yeah, someone needed to write the book, and we we were in the position to do it. And I I, I felt it was important for the industry that it was written. It, it was never truly a monetization play for us. We to this day don't offer services to other agencies, and I do speaking, and I'll you know I'll do some educational things around it. And we did do a webinar series around it, but other than that, no, we don't sell services to agencies. 
How did the industry change after that? Because HubSpot's blowing up. You've kind of put out this book that gives basically the blueprint, the game plan. What happened after that? Uh, the industry started advancing for sure. I mean, obviously, technology kept changing. Um, so that drives a huge part of it. And consumer behavior has changed dramatically and continues to change the way you know people communicate and look for information, make buying decisions, all that keeps evolving. So I think that those factors on their own have, which I refer to as change velocity within the book, it's just accelerated. Like, And as, as a result of that, you see diversification within the agency ecosystem. So more opportunities for people to split off and focus in video or, um, you know, social media obviously continues to be an essential piece. So people look for these niches. Um, but I think more and more agencies have obviously, you know, gone into marketing automation or, you know, that whole space, what HubSpot does, Marketo, Pardot, Eloqua, all those players. And they've started building services around that, which enables agencies to actually become more performance driven, which was what was lacking before, you know, 2010, 2011. Agencies weren't really doing that. So I think we've seen a lot of that. I mean, HubSpot alone has what probably 18, 19,000 customers now when we started with them. I don't know what number we were, but I think we were in the early hundreds, like low hundreds. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I think they have 2,900 certified partners worldwide and instead of one. <laughs> so a lot has, a lot has changed and I think agencies continue to evolve. And for me, it's a pretty cool part of it is there's a lot of agencies doing things that, I thought were theoretically possible way better than we do them now. Like they, they've just specialized in certain areas or taken pieces of their own ideas or mixed in some of our thoughts and, and they've built really good agencies and many of them are larger than ours. And that's great. Like that's, that was part of the deal. I was just like, I knew people take it in some cases do our own ideas better than we were doing them. It is crazy seeing how, especially how you identified early on, this was one of the main things, one of the main tenets of, your PR 2020 sort of manifesto is that there wasn't the performance reporting at all. It wasn't one of the factors. And then HubSpot came along, made that more possible, and people are starting picking that up. And, and kind of your thesis was proven with how quickly businesses flocked to that and appreciated and understood it. You published another book. It was the Marketing Performance Blueprint. And that's where you kind of laid out how you approach marketing rather than the agency side is how you approach marketing, right? Yeah, the, the second book was written for marketers, execs, entrepreneurs, more of our audience, the people we would sell services to. You know, in the years following the first book, uh, you know, outside of running the agency, I, I started um, spending a lot of time exploring how to take a leap forward from a technology standpoint both for our agency and for the industry. And it led me down some interesting paths and um, started building some software and doing some different things. But what I kept coming back to is every study we would read talked about the demand for marketers to, to prove ROI like never before, but that marketers were largely underprepared and underperforming. And it didn't matter if it was Adobe or Accenture, or IBM or Gartner, every report was basically saying the same thing. And so I started looking and say, well, why? And you know, it's just that cause and effect thing. Like, what is what is the reason or reasons why marketers are struggling to achieve performance potential? And I ended up boiling it down to um, three gaps. There's talent, tech, and strategy gaps. So if you don't have the right people trained in the right way, um, if you don't have the right technology, or if you have all the right technology but they're not integrated – then you can't build an optimal strategy to achieve performance goals. So if you're missing any of those pieces, if you're missing the right people, missing the right tech, well, then you're not building the correct strategies and, and you're never going to hit what you're capable of doing from an ROI perspective. So that's how the book is structured. It's, it's broken up into three sections of talent, tech, and strategy, all leading up to the, the performance gap being the largest gap. And so that's, in theory, what the book does is it kind of walks you through how do you how do you build an organization so that you can achieve performance potential. You're right. If if you're missing those things, it almost doesn't matter what else you do because you're not going to be able to display performance at least anywhere near as effectively as you could. Right. And a good example for the agency world is let's say, and, and this goes back to us, like someone 
five years ago comes to me and says, hey, we have $15,000 a month. Can you guys help us get 100 new leads a month? Well, hell yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> here's the proposal. Let's go. And then three months in, you realize, wait a second. They don't even have a marketing automation system or they don't have anything to manage their social and no one on their staff knows how to do anything. And we didn't even account for having to write all their content and they don't have any copywriters. Like you start realizing all these gaps within that organization that's going to prevent you. And it doesn't matter if they're giving you five, 10, 20, $50,000 a month. If they have fundamental flaws in their foundation, their marketing foundation, you can't fix those things and drive performance simultaneously without the right resources. So that, that, that's an example of like if you don't have the right pieces, even if you bring an agency in, they can't just mask all that. They can't just fully come in and augment and just change the client's organization. I mean, there's only so much that they can influence without, and with those fundamental pieces missing, you're right. There, there's no chance. It doesn't matter. It's not a dollars issue at that point. You later, you guys, you guys lay out the game plan model. And that's something I want to talk about a bit because I think there's two reasons. One, I, I think it's the model itself is interesting, but two, I think one of the main things I've noticed when talking to so many different agency owners and just being kind of in the space is that while Many agencies of all sizes, all scales talk about similar things, about similar results, about similar processes. They don't always talk about an actual model, an actual blueprint, an actual process that they follow to get those results. But the bigger agencies I've seen not only display that up front, but a lot of times it's a trademark branded type thing where it's like they own it. This is unique to them. So I want to talk about that as well. So I guess to unpack that question a little bit. First, just can you talk about what the game plan model is? Yeah, so the game plan originated from around 2009 or 2010 when we had been pushing the inbound marketing agency concept forward and we had defined our own internal game plan. And at the time, it was actually a little different. We published an ebook called How to Build an Inbound Marketing Game Plan. And it it walked people through basically the stages of the funnel and, and how to think about building a, a marketing strategy. And we used the game plan with the capital G, capital P. And like you're saying, it was just kind of a unique differentiator versus an inbound marketing strategy, which everybody could build. So part of it was that. But then we played that out visually as a football field and we tied in actually game planning and all that stuff. So the one that's in the performance blueprint is sort of an evolved version of that concept. It was... This idea that too many organizations don't recognize that the weaknesses in their foundation and therefore they can't accurately project their potential for success. So, and what I mean by that is, again, so let's take that same example. Someone comes to me and says, we want a hundred new leads a month. And I say, oh, okay, well, how many are you getting now? 10. Okay, that's a pretty significant jump. Are you increasing your budget? No. Are you adding to your team to make that possible? No. Um, are you getting new tech to do it? No. Okay, well, then that's not actually a realistic goal. Like nothing else is changing. So the, the, the start of it is that evaluate phase. It's like we have to take a true assessment of where we're at today and what our potential for success really is and the probability of us getting there. And that's why we built the marketing score software. It was, it was trying to take that process and put a scientific method to assessing probabilities of success. So marketing score is the software we built. It's the free online assessment. We've had about now, uh, 3,000 companies use it or so. So we have all kinds of fascinating data about how organizations rate themselves. And it was, at the time, it was a big data play because my theory was if we could get enough data on how enough organizations look at themselves subjectively and we marry that with objective data, we could actually start predicting success. At the time, that was what it is. What has it turned into now? Like, how do you see that as, as changing over time? Um, we just keep trying to make the process as a whole more efficient and more effective, I guess. So e even in the in the book, which I wrote in 2014, there's 15 steps. In 2015, at the Inbound Conference, we introduced something called the Marketing Growth Hackathon, which takes six steps from the middle of that process and condenses the planning process into, in some cases, one hour. 
So rather than spending 30 days planning, which is what we used to do with clients, they would come to us, pay the first month invoice, and we would spend a month in planning. We'll now run that as a workshop in one day, or we'll run quick one-hour versions of it internally. And what we're trying to do is focus on a single goal and come out with actionable solutions that can be executed in, in, in 30 days to 90 days. So we we keep iterating on the model ourselves. So even the one in the book is still relevant. If you want to do like if you're starting a business and you need to think through your whole marketing program, you would go through all 15 of those steps. Like you truly want to think about all of it. If you're just running a business and you got goals to hit in Q4, then the marketing growth hackathon is what was built to try and like okay, let's let's really focus our energy here and build a quick plan and go. It's a living process. It's not something you publish it in the book. And that's it. It's never changing. It's always the same. It's something that you're adapting constantly. One, because the technology, everything else that you're working with changes. But two, you learn. Yeah. And the principles still stay. Like the 15 steps are still relevant. It's just how you execute them and how quickly you can execute them that changes. What I want to dig into now is sort of what made you think of it as capital G, capital P game plan instead of just make your marketing game plan. Like why did you want to brand it so strongly and make it like a, its own sort of tangible thing? It's differentiation. I mean, it, it's, again, you could look around, everybody has a marketing plan or a marketing strategy, um, but we wanted to, to really kind of differentiate the concept and sort of put a stake in the ground of like, this is a, a unique approach. And because it was tied to inbound marketing at the time, like the inbound marketing game plan is a, is, different than you've looked at your marketing strategy before. And then there was just from our standpoint in drafting the ebook, there was this obvious visual connection to what we were trying to explain and kind of moving along the field and the goals along the way. So uh, it just kind of fit in it. And a lot of what we do, a lot of the things we've trademarked or put copyrights on, we're just, you're in it and you kind of spur the moment, come up with a different way to describe it. And it helps you just differentiate what you do as an organization. Right, because that's the thing. Is when you look at so many agencies that want to build themselves as kind of a full-service agency, they, they do anything and everything. An inbound marketing agency is a bit narrower than that, but there's still so many inbound agencies. I mean, HubSpot partners with yeah, almost 2,000 of them. And so having this IP, this differentiator, makes you stand out even narrower amongst that crowd. Yeah. How does it fit in with your marketing? Like, I guess a better question is how do you market your agency currently? I'm guessing not 100% of your clients anymore are coming from HubSpot. I'm sure there's more channels, but can you describe kind of where the clients are coming from now? Yeah, we, um, I mean, in almost 11 years now, we've never actually gone after a piece of business. So we continue to grow uh, 100% organically and through referrals. So it's all inbound and referrals. Um, we have the benefit of having written a couple of books and have a lot of premium content that's done very well. So we just get a lot of opportunities through the things we've done. I do probably two or three dozen public speaking engagements a year at different conferences. Those lead to opportunities for sure. And then marketing score, uh, although we don't aggressively use it as a lead gen tool, uh, it brings in 50 to 60 leads a month, which with data that most people would kill to have because people go through it and they tell us we have 27 profile fields and 132 factors that they rate zero to 10. Like we can run some pretty sophisticated modeling to predict which of those people would be ideal clients for us. So most people, if they're lucky on a lead form, get name, email address, industry title, maybe, maybe you'll get a couple other things. We have 159 fields that people give us. Right. So not not only do you know if it's if it's a qualified lead, but you also have the insights to know like what their issues are and like be able to like start doing some diagnosis on it. And, and yes, <laughs> there's, there's some things that we don't really publicly talk about that we can do with it, but we can use predictive modeling. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. there's some pretty advanced things we can do with it. And because that's actually one thing I, I said before the call that I was talking with Eric Baum recently from Blue Leads. And one thing he mentioned was that he just kept saying Paul is all about the metrics and just kept saying he knows metrics like nobody else. Is there any part of it? We don't need to get into kind of your secret sauce, but like, can you speak to a little about what he might have been talking about? 
Well, I mean, that's just our big thing, the data-driven, performance-driven. With the second book was obviously the angle we really went at. Um, it was just being able to tie what you do to outcomes. And, and so we have a lot of processes internally to do that for clients. We've built some proprietary ways to do it. And we've also, for the last year plus, been using artificial intelligence to assist in it. And there aren't very many agencies doing that yet. I wouldn't have immediately known about the AI angle. Like, do you see that could be another differentiator that you could market more? Uh, or is it just purely internal, like you don't want it to be like a... It's, I would say we have been doing a semi-public beta test of the concept. <laughs> so in our pricing page, you can see there's like monthly and weekly Google Analytics reports. And if you roll over it, it'll tell you beta. Um, that's it. That's the AI. Like we're... There are definitely some some things we're working on now that'll probably uh, be more public in the next month or two. That that'll be preparing to take a leap forward on the AI front. I would say. Interesting, and yeah, because that's something that I haven't heard anybody talking about. I haven't heard it. I'm sure there might be a few working on similar things, but yeah, it's something that I haven't seen anyone talking about other than talking about the potential for it. But actually, acting on it is is what needs to be done. So I'm, I'm going to be excited to see what you guys are doing. Yeah. The, the talks I'm doing this fall are um, content marketing in the machine age. And then at inbound and marketing profs, I'll be doing marketing in, in the machine age talks that will be sort of debuting a lot of what is currently possible and theoretically possible using artificial intelligence to transform marketing. I'm excited for that. I'm really excited for that. I'll keep an eye out. And one thing I want to talk about, while you mentioned the pricing page, this was something that I've seen before, but it's, it's not an uncommon, the, the point pricing. How much explanation to kind of a new client who might be a little green needs to go into explaining what the point pricing is and how it works? It's it's simple, but it's abstract. <laughs> uh, very little. Um and mainly because the way I present it is it's a fixed unit of value. So everyone's used to paying an hour for an hour. Or they're used to paying a, f- a fixed fee. And so all we do is give them an example. Like, you know, if you're writing three blog posts, each blog post is four points. It doesn't matter how many hours we spend on it. That's that's a fixed value. And it's the same every time we do it. So what we do is we'll show them different models of points being applied and we'll show them a sample 100 point campaign. You know, here's your ebook. It was 55 points. Here's your landing page. Here's your three emails. Here's your social shares. And there's a chart that shows how many points per. And so it's a very, when you see it, it's like, a, Oh, well, that's pretty simple to understand. <laughs> so we, we do on the website, um, obviously some basics of it. Uh, there's some things with point pricing we'll, we'll most likely be debuting in the, in the next uh, month or two as well that'll kind of go to the next level with it. There's sort of a few different models. Like you have on one end of the spectrum the Alan Weiss of consulting who says never discuss the price up front, like never do all these things. Like be very obscure about your pricing, about what they're getting, about deliverables and all of that. And then you have on the other end almost your original menu of services, what, it's gonna, what they're going to get, what they're going to cost. I like what you did because what it does is it focuses them on the value. There still is some time cost element going involved in how many points things are worth, but that's not the focus. The focus on what they're going to get and what that'll do for their business rather than you're going to pay us X dollars an hour. Is that roughly what you were thinking about with this? Yes, there is a psychology element to it. So when you think about what makes a point different than an hour or a point different than a dollar, why don't I just say $100? Well, the reason is because marketing is viewed as an expense. And if I'm spending dollars, if I know that I get X amount for this dollar amount, I'm thinking of the money I'm spending to do it. A point is an increment of progress. So when I think about points, I'm thinking about actually moving towards a goal. So it was meant to have a, a number of elements. One was just the simplicity of a single value metric that remains fixed. The other was the psychological element of I'm actually thinking about progress and moving forward when I think of a point. Mm. And also I'm assuming as clients get deeper into their life cycle with you, 
the way the points are allocated is going to change based on their needs. It's not like they just buy one package, they get the same exact thing every month. You're going to reassess what's needed, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the points can be allocated however we want. So we use performance to determine what the the how the points will be allocated in future months. So let's say like we start with a lead gen campaign one and it's 150 points over three months. That 150 points will be broken up into all the different projects within that campaign. Um, and then the next quarter, they may have lead gen campaign two and we may do a bunch of different things. So the only thing that remains constant is the number of points they get. How those are allocated is based on performance. You got how many people do you have in your agency? Seventeen. Right, because you're not in terms of headcount, this massive agency that can just throw people at any problem. So how are you able to you personally, but also as an organization, kind of balance so many things and handle all of your client work? The majority of our services are still service packages. It's it's still clients that are paying for campaign services. The uh, workshops, the consulting, and the speaking, like that stuff is really a spinoff of the books and the thought leadership stuff we do. So most of the workshops and speaking, consulting would fall under my uh, workload. I don't do client work. So on average, I probably do less than five hours a month of client work. Now, I sit in client strategy sessions internally, and I sit in client services workshops. Like I'm more working with our director of client services on the overall administration of client services and the performance of them, but I'm not doing client work. Do they, do you help with the kind of the sales process or is it really just those kind of strategy meetings? Like where are you involved in in those kind of steps of the process with clients? Right now I, I am the primary salesperson. So we've, for about three years I was not. And then last year I took it back over and it's been a very um, positive thing because it's given me ability to fine-tune the type of clients we want to work with and fine-tune the way we position the agency. So I probably will not stay in that role for the long term. But for right now, it's helped me transform a lot of the things we were doing and the things we're going to do um, by being a kind of the front line and being able to have all these conversations. So when a lead comes in, it's me that they're talking to right now. Before that, was it a salesperson that they were talking to or what? Who? We've, no, we've never had a salesperson. It's a, a different consultants who, you know, they're basically honeymooning as a salesperson. Their, their primary responsibility is running accounts and being a consultant and an account manager. And then we would allocate a percentage of their time each month to process leads as they came in and conduct calls and proposals. Was the reason why you took things over, was it because you thought someone, one person should own that or were there other reasons? We had one person owning it um, for a few years. We, we had two different people that worked in it. Mine was more of a necessity. The guy that was, we were starting to develop into, you know, maybe evolving him into a dedicated role, took a, a position in a, in a corporation in a tech startup. Um, so that there was part necessity. But when I looked at it, it's like, okay, well, I could shift this person or this person into this role, or I can just assume it. And at the time, there was, from a performance standpoint, there were some things I thought we could do better. And so I felt that if I did it, I could better assess like what was going on and maybe evolve what we were doing. You also said you don't see yourself always having that role. Would it go back to the old model where it was someone moonlighting, honeymooning in that position? Or where do you think you'll go once you kind of phase yourself out? Uh, it would probably depend on the, the scale of the agency. Uh, I, I have no intentions of hiring a salesperson. Like it's, it's not on my radar now, but I would never say I, I wouldn't ever do it. Uh, but as of right now, no, I don't, I don't have any plans for it. And partially because our growth is significant without that person. And the, the reason I've always avoided it is because a salesperson by nature sells and, and that they're compensated to sell. There are times when I don't want to sell when I, I want to stabilize what we have and I want to focus our growth in non-service areas. And so that person, I may have to come to them and say, Hey, don't bring me a new account for the next three months. <laughs> that's, that's a weird thing to tell a salesperson. Especially their commissioned salesperson. They're going to say, well, get, like, yeah, that's just not the way it works. You clearly seem very deliberate about not just your growth in general, but 
the way you manage the growth and the, how you grow. Because I'm sure if you wanted to have a bigger organization, you could. If you wanted more headcount, if you wanted more clients, if you wanted things like that, you could go that direction. So what kind of is the vision you work with or even the framework that has got your agency to the point of where it is? Like what, not the end goal, but like what are you kind of working towards with the agency? I'm guessing it's not a purely headcount thing. I would stay at the headcount we're at for the next 10 years if I could. I, I have no headcount means nothing to me. It, there's there's nothing, none of my success, none of the things I would consider success tied to headcount. And for that matter, I don't even really put a ton of weight in revenue. Like you need to grow, but we grow to keep the people we have. So we have incredibly talented people who have, in some cases, spent their whole careers here. And my growth goal is to grow enough to keep those people, to provide for them and their families for as long as they're able and willing to stay here. So my goal is, as odd as it sounds to many entrepreneurs, is to go home to my kids at night and, and to create an environment where other people can do that too. So I worked the 70-hour weeks for seven years when I started the agency, and then we had our first kid. And I haven't worked a night or weekend since she was born four and a half years ago. And I won't. So it's just like there's there's things, there's strategic decisions we've made that could have grown this agency and spin-off businesses to order of magnitudes that I can barely fathom. And I didn't do them because it would have I would have given up my kids' childhood, <laughs> like seeing them. So everything we do is to build an organization that can provide financially to the employees, however many that may be, drive success and performance for our clients, but more importantly, not wait till the end game to actually enjoy it. It's like, let's work hard. Let's but enjoy grow. the ride. Yeah. It's, it's just a journey and like, let's have fun along the way. And if we stop having fun, then we need to change directions. I mean, that's something that so many people strive for, not in just the agency world, but in any world and should is that work life balance and not even just that, not even just being able to go home, but to actually be proud of the work you're doing while you're there. And I mean, it's clear that you get that PR 2020 gets that your employees office you're on board. At the same time, I feel like there are other ways you could achieve that. Like you could sell the agency and spend more time at home without having to run an agency with 17 people. If that was really all the motivation is like the AI, like and all these other things, like is it just truly like you're driven just to see what you guys can do and like really just to get the best results for your clients and like that's it. No, I, you, it's a valid point. There, there, I guess there's two elements to it. So one is the personal side of it's just what I want out of life. The other is there hasn't been a morning in 10 and a half years that I haven't got out of bed anxious to get to the office because the, the things we do every day, like the client work that can seem mundane at times is what frees us or gives us the ability to explore what's possible. So the only reason I built marketing score is because after seven years, we saw this massive need in the marketplace for it, or at least within our own agency. Then I wrote the first book for the same reason in the agency world, and the second book for the same reason. And the stuff we're doing with artificial intelligence now is because like, I'm obsessed, and I've been obsessed for four years that this change was coming, and now I see it in front of us, and I get out of bed every day like wanting to spend 10 hours working on what's going to happen and how do we help drive that instead of waiting and watching it go by. So I'm highly motivated from a career perspective. I just try and turn that motivation off and flip my mind when I get home at five o'clock or five thirty, and, and enjoy the three, four hours with my kids and then flip it back on when I got out of bed in the morning. So I, it's hard work. Like it's hard to shut off. It was the hard, it was hard to stop working on Saturdays after my daughter was born. I loved my Saturdays. Like that was when I innovated. It was when my mind was free and I could do things. And it's taken four years to, to kind of train my mind to be able to still think in that way, but not let it consume me. Hold that thought because we're going to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. But when we come back, you'll learn what Paul and Elon Musk have in common. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. 
Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was in your last project, then you'd need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code ADVANTAGE. That's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code ADVANTAGE. All right, let's get back to Paul. Because it was funny, when I was doing research for the show, when I was checking out your Twitter, and I did see like a, a few mentions about AI, and I had like a note written down, like, he really likes AI. Because <laughs> one of the things that like with AI that like shook me up, it was like, I was like, oh, this there's so much potential with it. But then like, when I saw how scared of AI Elon Musk is, I was like, oh, all right, we got, I guess we got to be a little careful. So, so hopefully you can contain the creativity and not unleash this beast that we have to escape to Mars to get away from. But yeah, it's funny when I give the talk, it's inevitable. Someone will ask the question about singularity and what happens when computers are super intelligent. And the way I, the way I tend to explain it is it'll happen. And it, it, they just don't know if it's going to happen in 50 years or in, in five days, because there's literally ways you could take these massive leaps forward that could have it. Like IBM just made a significant amount announcement yesterday about replicating the performance of the human brain. Like there are things that are happening. I am not an expert on that stuff. I have no idea how it's going to happen or when I've read the books on it and I could sit around and probably have a interesting conversation with people about it. The way I look at it is there are technologies that exist today, hundreds of them, companies that exist using artificial intelligence in fascinating ways that can drive your business efficiency and performance right now. That's the stuff I live in. It's like this tech is here and it is elementary compared to what's coming in the next three to five years. You you need to be aware of what already is happening, like natural language generation for one. Think about what Facebook is doing with like deep learning and IBM with Watson. Like all that stuff is there for you to use already and be prepared because this is child's play compared to what's going to happen and it will change everything. And so that's for four years, I've been just sort of studying it and writing about it sometimes and speaking about it a little bit. And now I'm just like, okay, I can't, we can't hold back anymore. Like we have to push forward with an initiative around this because it's, it's coming. At the beginning of the talk, we're talking about how from when you kind of wrote the PR 2020 essay to when the early days of the agency just so much in the landscape has changed that like your five-year plan didn't know about social networks beyond maybe Friendster. Like, I don't even know if that was around then. So it's like in those compared to what some of the changes that will be coming that at some point, like you don't know when, but like they're out there. It's exciting. I can hear the kind of the excitement in your voice talking about it. And the fact that you've built a company that not only lets you pursue that, but lets 17 people, do some of the things like still deliver client work and get clients great results, but it also just lets you work in an exciting environment. I think that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wouldn't be doing it still if we didn't have the chance to do these things. And I, I've always said like after the first book, I said, I'm never doing that again. Like I remember the day I finished it after an 87 day marathon of writing and I walked out of my house. I was like, I'm never doing that again. Like that was so mentally taxing. And then like a week later, I was like, all right, what's next? Like, you just it's almost like an adrenaline rush i guess where you have to be working on something significant and the hard part is sometimes it takes years and you feel like days weeks months go by where you haven't achieved anything um but i've learned over time that often that's the most important time i can spend is when those days where it feels like i didn't actually get anywhere 
two more questions and then we'll wrap up. So the first question I like asking everyone this is what do you think right now, day to day, do you spend too much time doing? Email. (laughs) Email and meetings. Like I just, I can't stand either of them. And what do you think you don't spend enough time on? Like if you got that time back, if there was no email, what would you be doing? One thing. The, 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 and what I mean by that is literally like any one thing, because as entrepreneurs, as agency people, you're trying to do two, three, five, ten things at once. And my flaw, and it might be just personality flaw or the flaw of the role I'm in, I can't just pick one thing and do it. And if I could, like when I've written the two books, it was three months of that was the one thing I did. And I locked myself in an office for 10 hours every day and I wrote. And that was amazing. Like the process of being able to focus on one thing was amazing. So if I could just pick that one thing and just do it, I would be happy. I'm guessing, have you read the book by Gary Keller, The One Thing? No. You haven't? No. It's basically about this concept and about how the focus and everything, when you're just doing one big thing, like other things come up in this and that, but like when you're driving force, when you're just working towards one major thing that's when you're going to get the most extraordinary results. should read it. Yeah, I might, I might have to send that over. But no, so, so Paul, it's been great chatting with you. If the listeners do want to hear more about what you're up to, what you're doing at PR 2020, and just what you're up to in general, where should they go to hear more, to learn more, and just follow you? PR2020.com, the main place. But as you found with Twitter, if you want to know what's top of mind for me now, uh, it's just that. Paul rates are on Twitter and I, I do, I don't tweet a ton, but what you'll find is like, I'm working on this, the speaking gigs for this fall and I'm living and breathing artificial intelligence right now. So 80% of the things I tweet are probably related to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I was going through, I'm like, wow, this is going to be interesting. This is great. <laughs> but no, so what are the, I, I have it in the show notes, but I want to just make sure I get it here. What are those upcoming talks you're going to be giving? Uh, at Content Marketing World in September in Cleveland, I'm doing Marketing Growth Hackathons Agency Edition. That's a workshop. And I'm also doing Content Marketing in the Machine Age. And then Marketing Profs B2B Forum in October in Boston is Origins of the Marketing Intelligence Engine, which is an AI talk. And then that same talk or variation of it at Inbound in November in Boston. Awesome. I'll make sure to get all that linked up. And Paul, before you say goodbye, I just want to say thank you so much again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time and the invite. I've had a lot of guests talk about the importance of positioning and advocate niching down as a way to command higher rates and stand up from the crowd. But for those of you who still want to cast a wide net, developing the type of IP that Paul talked about today is absolutely crucial to differentiating yourself. Now, you don't need to drop everything and write a book and start traveling around the country giving a bunch of speeches to develop this IP. Instead, it should come more naturally as you gain experience delivering your services for your clients. As you find the best ways to diagnose a problem and deliver the solution, start codifying that into an actual process, name the process, and then feature that process prominently in your marketing. As you continue getting experience, those processes, though, they need to evolve and stay up to date. You don't necessarily need to be bleeding edge like Paul with AI, but having an out-of-date process is almost as bad as having no processes at all. The last point I want to make is that while many of my guests have chosen to go the solo route because of the work-life balance it provides, Paul has shown that you can actually run a thriving agency while still maintaining that work-life balance. It may require some of those 70-hour work weeks in the early days, but as you build the systems to support the agency and a team to help deliver, being an agency owner can come with a lot of freedom. Not to mention that there's just something about collaborating every day with a team of driven, like-minded people that you just can't replicate while working on your own. So no matter what your goals are, take a step back and figure out what intellectual property you can develop to not only help you stand up from the crowd, but also to help you run a better, more efficient agency. That's all I have for you guys this week. If you enjoyed the show and learned something, head over to iTunes and leave a review telling me what you got out of this episode. I love hearing from listeners, and positive reviews like that help us grow our audience, so if you could take a second to do that, I'd really appreciate it. I'll talk to you next week. See ya.